0: It's Tuesday, September 6th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, how analyzing baby teeth might be able to facilitate early intervention for childhood adversity. Plus, archaeologists have found the skeleton of a 17th century woman accused of being a vampire. And yet another Artemis update, including why the latest scrubbed launch attempt can kind of be blamed on the space shuttle. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. It might be a tough sell to get your kids to donate their baby teeth to science instead of playing their luck with the tooth fairy, but if they do, their teeth could help us learn more about human development in general, and potentially even about the future health of their former pint-sized owners. Earlier this year, Vox profiled psychiatric epidemiologist Erin Dunn, who calls herself the Science Tooth Fairy, some intentional branding to try to persuade those tooth donations, and Felicitas Bidlack, a specialist in tooth development. Studies over the years have shown that tooth growth patterns can reveal a history of illness or physical injury, and that traces of toxins and pesticides in teeth might even reveal harmful exposures that children endured. But Dunn and Bidlack are investigating whether the enamel layers of baby teeth could indicate incidents of childhood trauma or adversity— The hope would be that, as kids lose their teeth, doctors could look them over to assess their psychological development, determine any hardships they could be experiencing, and ensure they're on track generally when it comes to health. Teeth are a regularly used, hardy source of information for archaeologists. For decades, teeth have been used to learn all sorts of information about ancient human specimens—age, stressors like illness, exposure to metals like lead and copper But before a colleague suggested it to Dunn, the same analysis had rarely been done on living humans. Dunn had expressed a frustration at the lack of objective measures of adverse childhood experiences. But if archaeologists are able to see markers of stressful life events in the teeth of ancient humans, why not in the lost baby teeth of current humans? Quoting Vox, Baby tooth formation begins before birth. Cells build the tooth enamel layer by layer in a daily cycle, depositing prisms of tightly packed crystalline rods that make up the enamel. As primary or baby teeth grow, they capture the conditions of their surroundings, similar to growth rings in a tree. When Bidlack peers into a microscope at a backlit slice of tooth, it reveals a detailed archive of the child's daily development in the finely striped enamel. A dark line in some of the earliest laid enamel marks the transition from womb to world. From there, subsequent lighter growth lines are a record of daily enamel growth. But darker bands may interrupt the record, indicating that something disrupted the tooth's and the child's development." End quote. Teeth are not the only parts of our bodies that can physically change with trauma. Studies have shown that trauma can influence brain development and leave marks on our DNA. And it's not just baby teeth. Adult teeth show markers of growth and stressors as well. But, you know, we don't lose them as reliably as kids lose their baby teeth. And Dunn's research specifically focuses on childhood development. Maybe we'll see more adult teeth-focused studies from others in the future. But especially when it comes to childhood adversity, having some kind of objective measure is even more helpful in kids than in adults. Kids have more trouble explaining what may have happened to them, so any added tools we have to make assessments are extremely helpful. As University of California San Francisco psychologist Nicole Bush put it, quote, biomarkers have the capacity to tell us earlier in time whether or not someone is experiencing a biological activation that's potentially problematic, end quote. And Vox points out that some stress tests are done with blood, urine, or saliva samples to measure the level of cortisol, but that only reflects the stress level at the time the test was taken. Biomarkers in the teeth can tell you what someone has already been through, which maybe seems too little too late, but oftentimes the stressors or adversity a child goes through isn't fully understood until they're much older and able to understand or report what happened. Catching it when they're, say, seven years old and being able to intervene with support then could be huge. Quoting again, "...adverse childhood experiences raise the risks of psychiatric and other illnesses, and exposure to more adversity means bigger risks. On average, low-income children and children of color have more of these experiences than their white, wealthier peers, and those health consequences can follow them throughout their life." Dunn says that finding more detailed and precise markers for these experiences is key to closing those gaps. Ideally, a biomarker could show how much stress affected a child and when. It could show whether a stressor occurred during a sensitive period when important neural circuitry is forming. Teeth have the potential to offer that timeline, logging exposures in the body from the very start. Clinicians could then intervene before the child develops mental health issues like PTSD or depression, end quote. And Vox notes that there have been studies done on baby teeth of monkeys. A 2016 study showed that stress lines appeared on the baby teeth of six monkeys who had been temporarily removed from their larger group at a very young age. The lines appeared on the day they were removed, though the relationship wasn't as consistent in all of their teeth. Dunn and Bidlack have published one of their preliminary studies last November in the journal JAMA. In analyzing images of baby teeth of 70 children, they found that children whose mothers had mental health issues during pregnancy had thicker neonatal lines on their teeth, compared with the teeth of children whose mothers received lots of social support after pregnancy." And while the study controlled for multiple factors like age, other medical conditions, and supplements taken, Vox notes that the results are far from conclusive. You can see the differences in lines, but you still have to conduct a survey with the parents and children to help you interpret the lines. Some people's bodies just respond differently to stress. It might not necessarily mean a trauma or adversity on the level of concern happened. In fact, another similar study from 2019 did not find any significant relationship between stress and teeth. Both studies were fairly small sample sizes, however. It's certainly an interesting field of study, and were a reliable measure to be discovered, it could have huge implications for how we assess childhood development and adversity. For now, the studies will continue, and Dunn will continue collecting baby teeth from around the country. At an excavation site at a 17th-century graveyard in Poland, archaeologists have found a skeleton that contemporary locals may have believed to have been a vampire. The skeleton was found buried with a sickle placed across her neck and a padlock on her left big toe. Lead archaeologist Darius Polinski says that the padlock would have symbolized, quote, "...the closing of a stage and the impossibility of returning," end quote, while the sickle was placed across her neck so that if the corpse tried to get up, she would be decapitated." As Jennifer Oulette reminds us in Ars Technica, legends about vampire-esque creatures go back at least as far as to ancient Mesopotamia, and across nearly every culture over the centuries, you can find myths or warnings about creatures featuring similar traits associated with vampires. Now these weren't exactly what we'd recognize today. Some of them focused on monsters that stole or killed small children, some of which sucked their blood. Others were creatures that were animated corpses. A lot of the stereotypes that we associate with vampires today developed in the 19th century, thanks to writers like John Polidori and Bram Stoker. But during all those bursts of vampire paranoia, there were also practical methods for dealing with them, frequently decapitation or cremation, techniques to prevent a corpse from returning by ridding it of its body. other methods included burying the corpse with certain items also to prevent it from rising, like the sickle, across the neck of this woman vampire from the 17th century. Or was she a vampire? You know, I ended up reading a bit about 19th century activist Matilda Gage this morning. She was a suffragette, abolitionist, and campaigner for Native Americans' rights. She actually defected from the National Women's Suffrage Association because they weren't radical enough for her. You might know her as the woman for whom the Matilda Effect is named, that's the term for the tendency of women being denied credit for scientific innovation, and I learned today that she was the mother-in-law of L. Frank Baum, the author most famous for writing The Wizard of Oz. She used to live with Baum and his wife, Gage's daughter, Maud for large chunks of the year, and it's thought she heavily influenced Baum's politics, some of which are evident in his Oz books, and others were more explicitly stated in some of his works for adults. But anyways, Matilda Gage did a lot of research on the witch trials and frequently wrote about the witch trials as a key example of church-supported means of oppressing and intentionally killing women, especially educated and elderly women. In her book Woman, Church, and State, the original expose of male collaboration against the female sex, Gage wrote, quote, The witch was in reality the profoundest thinker, the most advanced scientist of those ages. The persecution, which for ages waged against witches, was in reality an attack upon science at the hands of the church. As knowledge has ever been power, the church feared its use in woman's hands and leveled its deadliest blows at her. End quote. So when I see examples like this 17th century skeleton of a woman who was killed due to accusations of witchcraft, vampirism, or some other alleged association with devilry, I just think about who she actually was. Was she a midwife, a healer of some sort, just a widow, someone who dared to speak her mind and question authority? Or someone who ended up crossing the wrong person at the wrong time and setting rumors spiraling from there. And indeed, archaeologist Polinsky has a theory about why this woman may have been accused of being a vampire, or a witch. Quoting again from ours. Another unusual feature is that the skeleton appears to be that of a woman of high social status, given the care with which she was buried. There were also remnants of a silk cap on her head, which would not have been affordable for a member of a lower class. As for why she would have been buried in such a way, Polinsky says that she had very noticeable protruding front teeth. This may have made her appearance different enough that she was deemed a witch or vampire by superstitious locals, end quote. Ah yes, medical conditions and bodily features we can't control. The other sure sign someone is in cahoots with the devil. And now it is time for yet another update on the Artemis One launch. So on Saturday morning, NASA underwent their second launch attempt for the SLS mega rocket and Orion spacecraft as part of the exploratory first mission of the Artemis program that will return humans to the moon this decade. And once again, the launch was scrubbed. Not only that, but the agency will not be trying again during this launch window, which closed today, Tuesday the 6th. The next launch window opens September 19th and runs through October 4th, while the one after that is October 17th through the 31st. And I'm currently seeing conflicting reporting on whether NASA will try again for the earlier launch window opening this month or hold off for mid to late October. October. As of recording, NASA has not officially announced holding off until later in October, but many are assuming as such. Now, there would be three main reasons for waiting for that second later launch window. One, if the problems they need to fix cannot be resolved on the launch pad, they will therefore require a rollback to the vehicle assembly building. Two, there are other already scheduled priority launches during the earlier window, including the SpaceX Crew-5 mission on October 3rd, taking a new team up to the ISS, including Commander Nicole Mann, the first Native American woman to go to space. And three, the flight termination system's batteries are required to be retested every 25 days, a task that can only be performed at the Vehicle Assembly Building, not on the launch pad. NASA is currently seeking approval from the U.S. Space Force for a waiver that would extend the battery rating to 40 days, preventing them from needing to roll back to the VAB, but if they don't get approval or if the issues they encountered Saturday can't be fixed on the launch pad, it's back to the VAB the rocket will go. Now, this might all seem like more bad luck for a rocket that has been plagued with delays and a ballooning budget over the last decade, but scrubbing a launch more than once, especially when you're working with an all-new rocket and all-new spacecraft, is really not unusual. Writing for the New York Times, Kenneth Chang recounted reporting on the space shuttle launch of STS-127 back in 2009. It was supposed to lift off on June 13th, but the launch was scrubbed, and it was scrubbed four more times, not actually launching until the sixth attempt over a month later. Due to this experience, and having reported on countless other scrubbed launches from the Space Shuttle as well as SpaceX's Crew Dragon and others, Chang was not surprised when the second Artemis launch was scrubbed on Saturday. He and other veterans of the field have kept their expectations in check for these first few attempts. Scrubs may happen for any kind of launch, but the Space Shuttle program was notorious for them. And that's relevant because the new sls rocket is derived from the space shuttle and problems the sls encountered during both launch attempts last week were also common issues with the space shuttle On Saturday, during fueling, a liquid hydrogen leak was spotted, reaching levels two to three times higher than the permissible safety level, according to mission manager Mike Serafin. High concentrations of hydrogen when mixed in the air pose a high risk for flammability. There was also a liquid hydrogen leak at the attempt last Monday, but it was much smaller compared to the one found on Saturday. As Chang explained, quote, Hydrogen is a powerful rocket fuel, but as the smallest of molecules, it's difficult to work with, leaking through the smallest of gaps. Often, leaks do not show up until the fuel lines are chilled to ultra-cold temperatures of minus 423 degrees Fahrenheit, where hydrogen becomes liquid. Worse, there is no way to check except during a countdown when liquid hydrogen starts flowing into the rocket. End quote. Now, hydrogen is not only powerful, it's efficient, more efficient than alternatives such as methane or kerosene. Efficiency is the name of the game when you're working with a government budget, so it's likely that hydrogen would have been used to fuel the SLS no matter what. But in this case, it was actually mandated by Congress that the SLS use the space shuttle's engines in the SLS, engines that also used hydrogen, therefore leaving NASA with no option but using hydrogen. Eric Berger explains for Ars Technica, quote, In 2010, when Congress wrote the authorization bill for NASA that led to the creation of the Space Launch System, or SLS, it directed the agency to, quote, Utilize existing contracts, investments, workforce, industrial base, and capabilities from the Space Shuttle and Orion and Ares-1 projects, including existing United States propulsion systems, including liquid fuel tanks, external tank or tank-related capability, and solid rocket motor engines, end quote. But Berger continues, quote, among the idea's opponents was Lori Garver, who served as NASA's deputy administrator at the time. She said the decision to use space shuttle components for the agency's next generation rocket seemed like a terrible idea, given the challenges of working with hydrogen demonstrated over the previous three decades. They took finicky, expensive programs that couldn't fly very often, stacked them together differently, and said now, all of a sudden, it's going to be cheap and easy, she told ours in August. Yeah, we've flown them before, but they've proven to be problematic and challenging. This is one of the things that boggled my mind what about it is going to change? I attribute it to this sort of groupthink, the contractors and the self-licking ice cream cone, end quote. And from Berger, now NASA faces the challenge of managing this finicky hardware through more inspections and tests after so many already end quote. Garver recently released a book called Escaping Gravity, my quest to transform NASA and launch a new space age, which focuses on her support of the commercialization of space exploration and pulls back the curtain on much of the bureaucracy at NASA. Some reviews have called it brutally honest. I saw one commenter refer to it as a burn book. Despite her critiques of the SLS, Garver has been tweeting this week in full support of taking the time needed to ensure a safe launch. This mission, after all, is all about testing the new rocket and spacecraft to make sure they're safe for human transport in the future. Even though it's easy to roll our eyes at yet another delay or critique the sheer amount of money that has already been poured into this program— All of these tests and catching these issues now is exactly the objective of this mission. As current NASA Administrator Bill Nelson said at the latest media briefing, quote, "...we'll go when it's ready. We don't go until then, and especially now on a test flight, because we're going to stress this and test it and test that heat shield and make sure it's right before we put our four humans up on the top of it." End quote. NASA is expected to make another announcement in about a week with the date of the next launch attempt, and you may hear official word about a rollback before then. All right, well, that is going to be it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.